and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm your host, Anna, and every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights, and opinions of inspiring people in business on a wide range of topics, asking the questions you want the answers to, and doubtless prompting some more in the process. We're talking to Ashton Applewhite, activist, TED Talker and author of This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism, about what is perhaps one of the last acceptable prejudices in society. So welcome, Ashton. Thank you. Good to be here. So I recently read a quote, it may have been on your website, actually, that said that all ageing is successful. I mean, the idea being that longevity, you know, personally and demographically is essentially a success story. So if that's so, why have we got such a problem with older people in society? What what gives there? That is a killer first question. Um, <laughs> I believe I believe the full the full quote in the scope of the, of is a little smaller. I say all aging is successful. Otherwise, if you wake up in the morning, yeah, right. Otherwise, you're dead. And it's a it's an argument against this notion, which I think is particularly American, but perhaps Western that. Um, that one should aspire at after a certain point in life to put on the brakes. You know, we, we adapt and grow all through life, but somewhere north of middle age, the objective becomes basically to work really hard to stop the clock and continue to try and look and act like a younger version of yourself. Mm-hmm. That is successful aging. And if you don't do it, then somehow, you know, if by, if you let, um, you know, your skin wrinkle or your gait falter, then you are failing at aging. And I don't think, any of us can fail at aging. I think that's the standard that sets us up to fail. I think there's a huge class bias because most of those remedies, air quotes around the remedies, are expensive. So I dislike the term successful aging in particular. You asked, why do we view um, aging as a whole, population aging, as a problem? Uh, and that's a wonderful question. Um, there is no question. I mean, if we're not, if we're that that population aging is a fantastic success of public health, of healthcare, of civilization. You know, longer lives are really one of our most fundamental measures of human progress. There are real challenges associated with scaling up some kinds of support that an older population will require. There's no doubt about that. But there is also this incredible bounty, which is to say the social capital of millions more, hundreds of millions more healthy, well-educated adults than ever before in human history. Mm. A metaphor that a journalist coined to describe population aging that sort of caught on um, he might have been British. Philip Longman was a a silver a gray tsunami, gray tsunami, poised to <laughs> yeah. crash on our defenseless shores and suck all our retirement and social services out to sea and leave all the younger people gasping for air. Population aging is not a tsunami. It is the best studied demographic phenomenon in history, and I like to think of it. Suppose that tsunami, in quotes, filled a silver reservoir. Right. This. So it's not that there aren't things to. Um, to be concerned about when it comes to our personal aging as well. They're real things to be concerned about. But let's tell both sides of the story. Sometimes I think I'm in the both sides of the story business. If we look at the this incredible permanent global demographic phenomenon of humans living much longer than we ever have before, and it's here to stay, 
we are going to come up with very, very different solutions and structures and rules and remedies if we see it as an opportunity mm. as well as a challenge. That if we, and we need to, in order to do that, we need to strip the blinders of age bias uh, away to become aware, aware of it in ourselves and to look at it w- with less bias and more accurately because so much of our view of late life is so is wrong. I mean, yeah. it's way more negative and it's simply not fact-based. Deeply, deeply prejudiced, I think. I mean, I, I th- you know, I, I talked about it being one of the last prejudices and I don't know if you'd a- agree with me, but it seems to me that you can, you know, you can mock in, in some gentle way older people having a senior moment and et cetera, et cetera, in ways that you would never be able to do with any other demographic group or, or any other group Absolutely indeed. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And we do it to ourselves. You know, we, we make stuff deprecating comments about ourselves. So our own attitudes are part of the problem. I mean, I don't say that so much anymore because, you know, it is sadly obvious how deeply entrenched much prejudice is in society and how much we have to do to remedy them all. And also, I think we know more and more now about how those different forms of prejudice compound and reinforce each other. Mm. And we, we each stand on our own little island of, you know, being being female or being a person of color or being a rich white guy. And but now even rich white guys will face ageism. So it's not that one oppression is better or worse than another. They all work together. We need to work together to undo them all. But we need to do it at all ages. Because so, these, yeah, exactly. these are big problems, right? I mean, let, let's take the, the obvious biggest one, in my opinion, climate change. Um, you know, we're going to need all hands on deck for that one and all ages and all the experience that older people have and all the, you know, fresh ideas that younger people have. And honestly, if, if we have all ages around the table, we organically dismantle ageism, just as if we have people of different uh, races, ethnicities at the table. It's much harder to be racist. So we need where the world is getting my, my official scientific new term for this is mixy uppy. That, you know, a globalized world <laughs> is more mixy uppy. Mixy uppy is confusing. It's complicated and it is better. And it's the future. And, and, and age needs to be part of that mix, which seems to me, of course, like an incredibly obvious thing to say. But when I ask people what they think of as criteria for diversity, age is often missing from the list, but I, that's changing. And no one says, oh, gee, you know, that's a dumb idea. They smack their foreheads and go, well, obviously. I mean, I think a lot of times when people are talking about aging, they're talking in these sort of uh, almost as if generations have different languages. You know, you get that sort of millennial thing has become very big and the Generation X and, the and, and the, you know, these sort of slightly siloed age criteria when, you know, everyone's working and living together. We have uh, so much more in common than we do. I mean, you know, I mean, each person is, of course, to some degree, a function of the era. And, and the cultural references in which we were born and raised. But the differences between people in a generation are much greater than the difference across. The same is true of people of a given um, ethnic group or from a given place. So generational effects tend to be exaggerated. A, a perfect example is how millennials are often trashed, often by older people, which is ageist. Ageism works both ways. It's any judgment about a person or a group of people on the basis of how old you think they are, that um, those lazy millennials um, are always, you know, uh, changing jobs and can't be relied upon. Well, guess what? 
I'm, I'm mid baby boom. I'm 66. When I was that age, I switched jobs frequently too, because I needed to figure out what I was good at and what I wanted to be in the world. So much of the things that are looked at as, as generational traits are in fact age effects that change as across the lifespan. Let's talk about gender as an intersection. You mentioned that even a, an older white male is going to face ageism. It's, 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 it's a prejudice <laughs> that's for everyone. <laughs> I mean, maybe not as much, but yes, you know, it, 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 no one is untouched by this. Um, yeah. but you know, how does ageism manifest particularly as an issue for women and, and why? And not just in terms of the, you know, the, the, the beauty trope and all of that, but in deeper issues. Are there deeper, you know, structural issues there? Well, um, what, what shocks me all the time is how big, the, how, how huge the effect of the beauty trope is. That the uh, women, women face additional, women face the intersection of sexism and ageism, which Susan Sontag called the double standard of aging, which is this idea that a man grows more distinguished and enhanced as he ages. I'll spare you the fake British accent. Um, <laughs> like a whereas, fine wine, yes. <laughs> exactly. And aging degrades women. And this is largely because women continue to be judged by our appearance. And let me say, we are complicit in this. We judge each other. It's usually not, it's never the husband who says, gee, I wish the old bag would get some plastic surgery. In every article I've read, the husband says, I think she's beautiful. And it is the woman who says, I need to do X, Y, Z in order to quote unquote, look young. You can't look young. You can only look like a version of the age that you are. Mm. And if we know anything, it is that continuing to be, to accept these standards and to judge ourselves by the standard of how we look reinforces ageism, sexism, and patriarchy. We dig the hole deeper. And it's especially visible, it's visible in the workforce. Um, economists have a charming name for it, the attractiveness penalty. Uh, and we see that women stop, women stop being promoted into management positions in the U.S. in their 30s. At wow. 34, it starts because you might someday decide to have children. And we all know that your uterus can't work at the same time as your brain. brain. <laughs> so this, um, this, you know, it's why I want to make a shout out for one of my um, favorite ideas, which is a, a bit of a radical idea. But older and younger women need to be friends with each other. We need to be allies and not compete. You, you hear women competing fiercely for the two slots at the table because there's only two. We need, if we compete at all, we should have 50% of those slots at the table, right? We should not accept the fact that we get, deserve less than half the pie for starters. And it's really, really important for women of all ages to come together and to talk about aging and to talk about how we feel about it. Because we don't do that. It's sort of a taboo. We don't talk about menopause. We don't talk about wrinkles. If, if younger women had, had powerful older women friends, they would see that aging, lots of older women talk about how it is the best time of our lives. We are liberated. We are more liberated from what people think of us. We are more fierce in our opinions. And it is an enormously powerful time. I think older women can be jealous of and nasty to younger women because we resent the power that youth confers on them. That's no help. And and I would love to see, I want to call them You Will Look Like Us as sort of a, a play on the idea that what matters most is how we look. 
What I don't love about that name is that older women have as much to learn from younger women as vice versa. I don't like the idea that old equals wise and more valuable. Every Mm -hmm. single human being deserves equal respect. But consciousness raising was the tool that catalyzed the women's movement. Women came together in a safe space and shared, compared stories. And they realized that what they had been thinking of as personal problems, I'm not blonde enough, my children aren't blonde enough, my husband won't give me money, I can't get the boss to stop patting my ass, I can't get promoted, were not personal problems. They were widely shared political problems that required collective action and that we could do something about. Women are going to lead the movement against ageism, and we need to come together in consciousness-raising groups like that and compare notes and see how we can join join forces instead of being pitted against each other in this patriarchal game of who has fewer wrinkles. Mm -hmm. That helps no. And I do have a slight plug for something that's free on my website, thischairrocks.com, is a free consciousness-raising guide. Um, under resources. I'm working on one for women. If anyone wants to write it, I'm listening. Um, you know, but we need, we need to come together at all ages, older and younger women, to talk about what aging is really like, why our fears are out of proportion. We waste so much of our youth worrying about it, which is foolish, and how we can make ourselves powerful. I say the women's movement taught us to claim our power, and the movement against ageism will teach us to hold onto it. I love that. I love that. I mean, it, it's, it's that scarcity of resources and mm-hmm. that, you know, that sort of terrifying vision of the future. There's uh, not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough positivity. I mean, we recently did a podcast on the menopause where our expert was sort of saying no one ever talks about the menopause. And, and actually, if you just leant across and talked to the person next to you and said, I'm, you know, not feeling so great today, I'm made it a thing that was just part of life. Exactly. So- and the reason we don't talk about menopause is because of ageism. Because if we accept the idea that which 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 the patriarchy wants us to accept, believe me, is that our worth as human beings is linked to our reproductive value, mm. then we don't bust the myths up. And research around the world uh, on women's health stops being conducted at age 55 because there, there's no data anywhere because we are no longer reproductively active. So what possible interest could there be in our health and well-being? Does that, does that also carry on into the world of work? I mean, obviously, well, no. the, the, you know, the reproductive uh, age may be over, but you've got another whole third of productive life after that. Um, and Guess what? Yeah. You know, you have an eight-year-old right now who you have to worry about. My children are grown up. You know, I, I am liberated now from that. I mean, it was wonderful and I, I wouldn't give it up. But uh, post-menopause, when your children are out of the house, yes, I have grandchildren who come in and pester me. That's delightful. But I can, um, you know, I can hand them back, which by which I don't mean to say, I don't mean to pit any group against each other. They're enormous pleasures to having children come in and, and bother you. But this, you know... W- Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, has a has a quote saying there there is nothing like the zest of the postmenopausal women. This enormous energy often kicks in, and uh, and it is almost invariably um, a sense of liberation. It may not be on our own terms, because many women do speak of becoming invisible. But what that means is we become invisible to the male gaze, and. It is problematic if that's how we value our self-worth. 
So how how uh, what is the next shift in defining and redefining our self worth? You 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 um, have resources on your website which you talked about, but what what do you think the key shift in somebody's mentality should be? I think the key shift, um, it's a cliche, but like most cliches, it has a grain of truth, is that all change starts within. The fact is that ageism seems um, excusable because, it, or, you know, ageist comments go unremarked because this is a new idea and we are just beginning to dig into it. We are all biased in all the ways all the time, but we are all ageist in particular because we haven't started to think about it. The essential first step is to look at your own attitudes towards age and aging. What, how do you feel when you see a wrinkle? You know, who says wrinkles are ugly? You know, if, if any woman listening to this feels like a lesser version of her younger self, less interesting, less fun in bed, less valuable, think about where those messages come from and what purpose they serve. They serve to, you know, they're trying to persuade you that menopause is an illness so that you can feel terrible about it and buy stuff to fix it. I'm not talking about dealing with actual you know, troublesome physical symptoms, which of course we should, but to not to see it as this tragedy or this demise in your value as a human being. Wrinkles, wrinkles are the story of our lives. You know, instead of looking at the face in the mirror and thinking, oh my God, what happened? You know, let's think about some of the things that did happen and how fantastic they were and how that story is written on your face. If you, if you think about your friends who are sexually active, and again, there is absolutely nothing wrong if you decide that you don't want to, you know, play in that arena anymore. But if you, if you do want to, want to continue to be sexually active and intimate, think about your friends who are. They are not the thinnest. They are not the youngest. They are not the prettiest. They are the people, the women who know their lovers are lucky. Confidence mm. is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And ageism and sexism strip us women of it, and we need to push back. I wrote a really cranky blog post um, not that long ago called, If Aging is So Awful, How Come No One Actually Wants to Be Any Younger? And they don't. I, mm. I pose the plan, and their face lights up, and they're like, oh, cool, I can be 20. Oh, wait. I would have to be, first of all, my 20s actually sucked. And second of all, <laughs> um, right, your 20s are hard. And one of the reasons they're hard is because of the ageist narrative that says, these are your peak years and it's going to be downhill from now on. That's ageism at work in the culture, right? In fact, you don't get to be 21 with your 45-year-old brain, right? You have to go run the clock, erase the tape. And no one wants to do that. We understand that our years are what make us us and they are valuable and hard won and precious. So of course, you, you, uh, you're the writer of the blog, This Chair Rocks and the book. Uh, and the British version is actually coming out next week, I understand. I'm very excited. I, I self-published my book here in the US three years ago because I couldn't um, get a publisher to pay the kind of attention to it I thought it deserved. A big publisher had an option, and I swear to God, the editor looked at me with a straight face and said, we're concerned that no one else is writing about this. Um, my, um, my informal name for that is Age Cooties. 
in those <laughs> intervening three years, aging has really bubbled to the surface as some has gone from, you know, taboo to something approaching trendy, which um, entertains me. But I, in the meanwhile, last year, I sold the rights to a new division of Macmillan here called Celadon, and they sold the rights to a British publishing house called Melville House. And both editions are coming out in the UK and the US next week on March 5th. So I'm thrilled about that. Absolutely. I mean, like you say, aging has become a little bit of a, perhaps not yet quite a zeitgeist, <laughs> but it's getting there. Um, well, it stopped being a dirty word. Let's take what we can get. Exactly. And like, and, you, and, you, you know, know, and a point about that is that aging is not just something annoying that your parents do or celebrities do. We are aging from the minute we are born. We are all embarked on this. And one symptom of ageism in the culture is its conflation with, with decline and death, right? In fact, death, dying is a discrete biological event that happens in a few hours or a few days, maybe a few weeks at the end of all this living. Aging is living and we are all doing it. So we need to be aware of that at a, at a much earlier age, I think. I mean, you know, the, one of the issues with aging, as you say, is that no one thinks they're aging until, you know, perhaps they're 90 if they're right. lucky there's, there's <laughs> denial that no one no one ever wants to be old because we think of old as some sort of falling off a cliff where everything goes to hell and and you become invisible you know and and one of my um pitches is that we need to get rid of this old young binary because it does not exist there is no velvet rope after which it's all downhill. People scramble with, you know, facelifts or wanting to be, you know, not not go somewhere where they'll be the oldest or, you know, not hang out with older people because it'll make them look old or whatever, so that we don't cross to the wrong side of that divide. That divide punishes us. It fills us with needless dread. It segregates us. And think if that, so, so if you think about gender, how until pretty recently in Western culture, we thought of it as a binary, male or female, and now we understand that it's a spectrum. Let's ditch the old young binary too, because if anything is a spectrum, it's obviously age. It's one reason I came up with a better thing to call old people and young people, because old and young imply a binary. And I got literally got tired of typing older people when I was writing my book. And I used the words olders and youngers. Because any a five-year-old in the room will assure you that she is older yeah. than that three-year-old, right? We're all we're all on this spectrum, and while most of us, I have to say, including me, still I'm still working at this, are not thrilled to identify as old, I will readily cop to being older, mm. and it helps you get over that age denial, which you touched on, which is where the root of all ageism. It's not going to happen to me, or I'm going to not do it like that, you know, withered crone in the corner. Well, maybe you are, but maybe you aren't, you know, mm. we can't know, we're not in control. So if you can imagine, connect to your future older self, at whatever distance, however distant a speck on the horizon she needs to be, I call it becoming an old person in training, then you don't get on this hamster wheel of denial, which spares you enormous anguish and uh, disposable income. And you make a connection to the older people around you saying, oh, I, I like the way they're doing something and I really would like to avoid that behavior or that mistake. And it helps you prepare for the fact that the obvious fact that you're going to move through life and not be young forever and that that's an incredibly fascinating, enriching journey. I'm not saying the scary stuff isn't real. I'm saying let's look at the old people around you. You know, they're happy. People are happiest at the beginnings and the ends 
of their lives. That's just one of the surprising data points. Yes, so so many things to challenge the perception. And, and as you say, uh, making it not the other. Othering is such a, a negative experience in, in all walks of life, isn't it? Exactly. It's the root of all prejudice, seeing mm. a group as other than yourself. The bizarre thing about ageism is that that other is your own future older self. And I, I, I mean... All prejudice is irrational. No prejudice makes sense. But if you were to look at it in that narrow sense, you would say, well, gee, it really doesn't make sense to be prejudiced against my own future self. To live in denial of something that I know is happening every single damn day is never going to happen to me. Exactly. Exactly. It makes no sense. <laughs> so what, no, I mean... No, no prejudice makes sense. No prejudice no makes prejudice. sense. Exactly. What no. What next for ageing then for you? Um, I, I know that you're coming also to do uh, a week of talks in the UK I on am. the 20th of May. I'm off. I'm bracing. I'm off uh, next week for a 15-city tour, which I'm hoping my, my voice and my... Um, I don't know what. I, I, hope, I hope I hold out, but I'm very excited about that. Um, and... You know, I, I, I sold the rights because I wanted to get bookstore distribution and major media awareness and foreign publishers. And I think it's just I, I'm hoping for hundreds and millions of voices to join me, for people to take any part of my message and make it their own, borrow from it, steal it, appropriate it, start your consciousness raising groups. Let's take this out into the world in whatever way makes sense to you because a movement needs a million voices. If you think about the position of women in the world today, think where it would have been without the women's movement. And that is precisely why we need a global grassroots movement to do the same. And it's happening. There was a fantastic 60-day anti-ageism campaign across Europe run by a, um, an outfit called Age Platform Europe. And Australia just launched a national anti-ageism campaign. And one plug for free stuff is a is a website I just started um, last summer called Old School, oldschool.info, which is a clearinghouse of free, vetted anti-ageism resources. So you can learn about those campaigns or tools for your classroom, make something, send it in to me, I'll put it up there. Let's make this your own in any way that makes sense to you and put it out in the world. Absolutely. Ashton, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And as we said, uh, Ashton will be in the UK on the week of May the 20th. Uh, if you keep an eye on her blog, thischairrocks.com, for more details of where she will be speaking. <laughs> <laughs>